Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, if you were watching TV in the 80s, you probably heard Suzanne Chani's work. The electronic music pioneers synthesizer compositions became the logos for Coca-Cola, GE, PBS, and dozens of other brands. Today, Chani's lush electronic compositions and quadraphonic performances, or four-speaker surround sound concerts, are cultivating new audiences. We'll talk with Chani about the potential she saw in a late 1960s Berkeley-invented synthesizer known as the Buchla, and how she turned it from knobs and wires into a trailblazing five-decade music career. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. She's been called a synth hero, a sonic sculptor, diva of the diode. But if you're not familiar with Suzanne Chani's Velocity of Love or her other electronic music compositions, you probably know her sonic logos, especially if you were watching commercials in the late 70s or early 80s. Coca-Cola Pop and Pour. Or maybe you know this one. Atari Video Games. Chani is credited with paving the way for mainstreaming synthesizer music and ads, and she's celebrated for her innovative and inviting electronic compositions. The five-time Grammy-nominated artist honed her craft in the Bay Area, Los Angeles, and New York. She joins me now from her studio in Bolinas, California. Such a pleasure to have you on Forum, Suzanne. Oh, thank you, Mina. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited to speak with you. So I understand you have the instrument the bukla in front of you. Can you tell us about it and describe what it looks like? Well, it's here on in front of me with all of its myriad blinking lights talking back to me. It's always on. I keep it in my studio. It's like a living being. Unless, of course, we have no electricity, which happens frequently (laughs) these days. (laughs) With all the storm, the lights are telling me, you know, various things, uh, the position of the sound in space, the intensity of a, a random voltage, the shape of an envelope, uh, the stage of a sequencer. And so all of this feedback system 
is something that I relate to, you know, and personalize with the instrument. So I understand that when you first saw this or saw the warehouse where it was being made, you pretty much felt like you belonged there. You fell in love. Can you tell us when you first encountered it and about its creator, Don Buchla? You know, the more I think about the history of myself and the Buchla, I am actually really amazed that this connection even happened. I have no explanation for it. I was a traditional composition student at the University of California in Berkeley. I had come from the, uh, you know, the, the Western history of composition, classical music, and I was a pianist. And at that moment in my evolution, I randomly ran into the Buchla instrument uh, at the, uh, at, it was being housed, the very first one was at Mills College as part of the San Francisco Tape Music Center. Mm. And then through another random connection, I met through his neighbor, I met Don Buchla. When I entered his big loft, and saw all those, you know, the magnitude of the instrument that was there, I just came under a spell. It, I can't even explain it. It was just something that struck me, and it was like love, you know? And I, I've often thought of explanations, in, you know, post-experience. Uh, but uh, and, and that has to do with, you know, somewhat just being a composer. Mm and the attraction of this machine because uh, it allowed you to to be in the moment. But anyway, that's a long story. Uh, but that's when it happened. So it happened in Berkeley in about 1969. And when I finished graduate school, I went to work for him. Making these machines? Making yeah. these instruments? Yes. Yes. So I sat at a soldering table and followed schematics and plugged things into into circuit boards and uh, made the machines and saw them shipped off to CalArts and various large studios throughout the world. So tell us what happened when you asked Don to teach you and some of the other people working at the warehouse to play it. Right. Well, you know, I think, you know, the experience was this. Um, we, you had an experience with the machine, so you would, you would move a knob and a slider and all that. But we were also dealing with the insides of the machine. You know, these uh, resistors and plugging things into the boards. And I hungered for more knowledge about the actual inside of the machine. And in those days, you couldn't study it. There weren't any courses on electronics for music or the books about electronics didn't deal with this. And so I asked Don if he would teach us. A few of us uh, wanted to learn, and we started a class. And Don was not a very um, outspoken, sociable person. He was very much to himself and and quiet, but he did agree to do this class. There were four of us, three guys and myself. And after the second class, I was told, now don't take this personally, but we've decided that 
there shouldn't be any women in the class. <laughs> I said, how can I not take this personally when I'm the only woman? <laughs> I mean, this is, and, you know, it, it took me my whole life to understand that it really wasn't about me personally. It was about the discomfort that men felt in technology, having a woman in the room. So that was a, it was really um, an important thing to grasp that it was about comfort mm. and nothing more. Yeah. Well, that is very good of you. I, I know you were absolutely <laughs> determined to learn it and to afford your own. How were you able to get one ultimately? Well, I didn't get it by working for $3 an hour at Buclos. <laughs> and, you know, and the the other story there is that, you know, I was fired on day one. So when I went to work for him at the end of the first day that I was there, they found a cold soldering joint and said, oh, it must be the new girl. And uh, they fired me and I just showed up the next day. Thank goodness, because I refused to be fired. And you know, that's another little moment in history that is just so pivotal. You know, you see these tiny little pathways that could go diverge either way and somehow the way that led to the future. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I the instruments were expensive. And in fact, very few individuals owned them. They were, you know, being shipped to CalArts, as I said, and to some large studios. Uh, but I really did want one. And I committed to it. And I started to put my brain to work on how can I make money. And that became my, you know, my, my force at work for years, you know, to make money. And I discovered that I could make money in the advertising world, and uh, that's that's where I that's where I made my money. Yeah, I understand that. You know, you were able to link up with Macy's and get them to agree to have you do some sound design for some of their commercials, and, and then you know that's when you started to realize, wow, people will pay you for this. <laughs> Yeah, well, my boyfriend at the time in Berkeley, lit, he came from Milwaukee, and his neighbor, so this is all so provincial how things start, you know, his neighbor next door you know, was uh, making commercials for Macy's Christmas uh, package, and somehow we talked him into letting me do the sounds, uh, the sounds, the, the score. I mean, I thought of it as uh, sounds because... That's when I realized that all of these products uh, had a, a poetic sonic equivalent that I could make. Hmm. This, this machine was so poetic. You made sounds that didn't exist. You, you could create the emotional content. So if, this, if the commercial was about a fur coat, I could make the sound of a fur coat. Mm -hmm. If it was about a keychain, I could make the sound of a keychain. And that was really the beginning of my sound design uh, pathway. 
We're talking with Suzanne Chani, music composer and performer who's had a five-decade music career and continues to innovate, <coughs> cultivating new audiences with her performances. She's got one coming up for Noise Pop in San Francisco. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your questions for Suzanne Chani. Maybe you know some of her music and would like to share with her what it's meant to you. Or maybe you love synth music and you can tell us what that genre means to you as well. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. And Suzanne, we've got about a minute and a half before the break. I'm wondering if you would be willing to play for us to, to demonstrate the power of the bukla. And feel free to play anything you'd like, something from your upcoming performance or whatever speaks to you. Okay, so my performance is called Improvisation on Four Sequences. And the four sequences are four 16-stage sets of notes. And I'm going to show you a little snippet of something from that. So if I turn up this, you'll hear this is my uh, sequence A. And I can easily transpose it. So I'm going to put it up an octave. And now I'm going to add in another oscillator and move the first one to B. So I'm going to have A and B at the same time. So those are the two sequences going. And now I'm going to add in a uh, variation of the B sequence. So this is done. It's the same sequence, but it's gated differently. And I can also sustain it so that you hear it, the whole thing. I don't know if you can hear it moving around the room, but it is. It's because the spatial characteristics are also important. Here's another variation on the A. And then I can add a melody on this. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Suzanne Chani, a musician and pioneer whose synthesizer compositions would become the logos for famous brands. She also has earned five Grammy nominations for her electronic compositions, which have been described as warm and inviting. And if you have questions or comments for Suzanne Chani, thoughts about synthesizer music and the effect that that genre has on you, maybe you remember sonic logos that she crafted, you can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social social channels at KQED Forum. We're on X, Instagram, our digital community on Discord. You can call us at 866-733-6786. So Suzanne, I understand you take the bukla, this instrument that you've just demonstrated for us, to LA where there is excitement about its potential in the film world. You learn scoring and so on, uh, but you ultimately move to New York. You want to tell us a little bit about LA and what made you want to go to New York? L.A. was, um, in those days, not much was happening, really. I mean, the <laughs> film world was wonderful. And I I did give uh, lessons to a lot of the major film scorers, Leonard Rosenman amongst them. And uh, I did learn film scoring from Dominic Frontieri, who did a lot of work. Uh, he did John Wayne films and other TV series. And um, I did one of the first electronic music uh, scoring sessions with him and um, there was no art scene so it, it was just all of them and there was still a part of me that longed for something more experimental I was invited to New York to perform at an art gallery the Benino Art Gallery in fact we're going to be releasing we found a recording of that concert in 1974 and that's going to be coming out very soon um, none, of, none of the recordings were made in quadraphonic back then even though I played in quad because they we, we just didn't have the machines to record it uh, but anyway it's a document and that's coming out so I went to New York and did this concert in the Benino Art Gallery and I instantly fell in love with New York. I just never went back to LA. I had everything put in storage. I didn't get it for another five years. It didn't matter. I was in love with New York, the energy and the opportunity. You know, you have this feeling in New York that you can't actually do anything. It's wide open. It's up to you. You make it happen. And I did make it happen. I made it happen that, um, you know, I, I started out as a session player and uh, did a lot of uh, work with record companies and and other production things where I was, you know, adding my magic to the track, my electronic magic. Mm. And as, as I, you know, grew in notoriety, uh, I realized that it would be better if I started my own production company because I knew better, I felt, how to integrate electronics in the musical, you know, texture. Because back then, it wasn't all electronics. It was electronics with uh, session players, you know, drums, bass, piano, guitar, orchestra. And uh, so I started my own company, Chani Musica. And uh, that grew and grew and grew. Uh, and there you go. Yeah, you experience a tremendous amount of success in New York. But before that, you do describe yourself as hitting bottom. What were you going through when you hit bottom before you were able to pull yourself up? 
hitting bottom is like some place where you know where it is. And once you get there, you say, okay, it's all up from here somehow. But I had, I had an early breast cancer and uh, this just struck me like a bolt of lightning. It's, it's a threat to your mortality. And in those days, you know, it was very, there wasn't a lot of information available. Uh, so that was very debilitating. Then I was going through a transition because I was successful. My real goal was to become an independent uh, recording artist. And I here I was saddled with this big production company, that was doing television commercials, and I wanted, I didn't want to uh, just close it down I, because there were so many people involved. I wanted to transfer it to them, and I thought that would be easy. I had a big studio, million-dollar studio, and all these people working, and I just said, here, here's a gift. You guys take it and run, and nobody could run with it mm. and so there I was you know with this big studio and I just uh I just I walked away I said I have to get out of New York mm. it's it must be bad for my health you know it, it was yeah yeah well we have listeners so weighing that in was and bottom yeah this listener on Discord writes, really enjoying the soundscape and the discussion. Alan writes, I imagine that women encounter this all the time, but as a man, I am flabbergasted that the men said they weren't comfortable, so you had to leave. <laughs> there, there were so many moments when you had to, as one of the only women in this space, but also just as a woman, period, had to, had to sort of go up against such rampant gender discrimination and, and not being treated with the same respect that maybe other musicians were treated with. Can you tell the story of uh, getting that gig with Coca-Cola, uh, ultimately that pop and pour that is so iconic, but what it took for you to even get a meeting or get the producer, um, the music producer Coca-Cola to show up to a meeting with you? It's such a great story. Yeah, well, Billy Davis was the head of music at McCann Erickson. He was a black producer from Detroit, and he was brought in to revolutionize Coca-Cola music by incorporating all the great R&B singers from Detroit. And uh, he was very, you know, he was Mr. Cool. And I was, you know, schlepping around with my calendar, you know, calling agencies and knocking on doors and getting appointments. And I would get an appointment with McCann Erickson and I would arrive there and Billy Davis would not be there. So I'd go back and to phone calling and I would, I got another appointment and I went to McCann Erickson and Billy Davis was not there. The third time this happened, I said, where is he? I was just so mad. And they said, well, he's in the studio and he's unavailable and you can't speak with him. And I said, where is the studio? And they said, you know, it was in Times Square, Mayflower, Mayflower recording. Uh, and I, I went down to the studio 
And I went in. It was a really, I shouldn't say this, but it was dumpy, a dumpy studio. <laughs> it was, you know, kind of in the middle of Times Square. And I went up the elevator and I went and I said, where is Billy Davis? And they said, well, he's in Studio A, but you can't go in. And I went in. And this is like, that was the me back then. I guess it was a form of just, uh, you know, that New York energy that says <laughs> you can do anything, but you, you actually have to do it, you know? So I went into the studio and Billy was there and he says, uh, who, who are you? And I said, I make sounds. And he said, aha. Uh -huh. Okay, and this is really strange because at that moment they were working on a radio commercial and they had a little blank spot in it. And he played the commercial in the little blank spot and he said, can you do something in there? And I always said yes. If somebody asked me if I could do something, I always said yes. And he said, well, what'll it take? And he says, well, I, I said, I need my boot club. And he said, well, go get it. <laughs> and I went and got my bukla. I had a cartage company that would follow me around called Doopies. And I delivered the bukla and I set it up. And of course, this was a confrontation of different universes. Billy Davis from R&B World in Detroit and me you know, with my wires and knobs and dials. And he took to it so in such a relaxed way. He was so cool. You know, he, nothing frightened him or, you know, upset his equilibrium. And so I would start to, you know, play with sounds. And then, then the rest is a long story. I, I developed the idea of the bubbles because... It was something that the machine could do that was generic enough to, in my mercenary mind, be used in every single piece of music because it was non-pitch-centered. Mm. Yeah. So it was a logo. It was a logo that they could put in, and they did. They put it into every single Coke commercial. Well, let's and, let's hear it yeah. one more time, just since you're talking okay. about it. So they play that in every single commercial, and every time it plays, you got paid, right, Suzanne? Yes, that's right. That's right. Oh my gosh! This listener writes <laughs> though. The chauvinism your guest face was rampant in the 70s and 80s. Her refusal to accept being fired is totally inspiring. And then also just the way you marched right into Billy Davis's studio and said, you you know, you need to, you've been missing appointments with me. I'm a sound artist and you need to hear me. Um, listener Andy writes, I was taught to configure and play a Buchla modular synthesizer at San Jose State University in 1986. The music department offered a course called Electroacoustic Music. I was a graduate student in sculpture and was using sound as part of work. Working with the Bukla felt like being a mad scientist. Lots of patch chords and modules on racks. I think I've heard you say, Suzanne, that that what drew you so much to the Bukla, though you were a, a pianist, is the fact that you had so much control um, 
What do you mean by that, the, the control that a bukla offers? Well, if you're a composer, what you have to realize is that, in, in my day anyway, many composers died without ever hearing their music. So there were two stages to manifesting a composition. One was writing it, and one was implementing the performance. With the bukla, you did both at the same time. So it was a feedback system where you, you were in the sound. You were hearing it at the moment that you were designing it. This was revolutionary from a compositional viewpoint. The other aspect of this machine is that I met Bukla about five years after he uh, he originally invented this idea of an analog modular musical instrument. And he had advanced his concept by then that this was indeed a performance instrument, that you it could be in the family of instruments as we knew them over the centuries. And he made me believe that it was a instrument, which is a a very important distinction because a lot of electronic music machines, whatever, were relegated to the studio and they were used for recording. And I certainly did a lot of that. But the other aspect was that if you had a portable instrument that you could interact with and Don designed the interface so that you could perform it live. It had lights. He was the only one that had this. You know, hundreds of little lights that told you what was going on. Color-coded wires, a distinction between the audio and the control voltage. Uh, he convinced me that it was performable, and I dedicated myself to that, and that's how I came to New York, was to do a live performance. But then I found out that I couldn't go the distance with that because no theaters would provide quadraphonic right. sound systems. Yeah. Even the limitations of our radio was why we couldn't have you come in with that system, but and we have you in your studio and, and as you're demonstrating it, it's it's in quadraphonic. Um and well, let me just invite listeners again. What would you like to ask or tell Suzanne Chani? Because our email address is forum at kqed.org. Our social channels are at KQED Forum. Our phone number 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Suzanne Chani, a music pioneer who's going to have a performance Saturday at the Grace Cathedral as part of San Francisco's Noise Pop Festival. She'll also be in Southern California in March at the Alex Theater in Glendale as well, if you want to keep an eye out for those performances. But Anna writes, rock musicians were some of the first to embrace the synthesizer. Did your guest ever work with rock musicians? Did you, Suzanne? Oh, yeah. I mean, I worked with everybody. When I was a studio musician, uh, I did a lot of uh, jazz, rock, uh, whatever. But, you know, the use of it in rock, the fascination in rock was that it was a keyboard instrument that could rival the lead guitar you know it had it was had amplitude you could turn it up and um and uh what's his name oh my gosh um 
Oh, the Moog player. A Moog, you know, the most important. And and the, the mini Moog had a bass sound that everybody loved. But that was, you know, for me, not the direction that I wanted the instrument to go because I had come from this, you know, Buchla world. And I guess you would make the distinction East Coast and West Coast. And uh, West Coast was more Buchla where you were using you know, a multitude of control voltages mm. to affect the sound and not just a keyboard voltage. As Buchla would say, the keyboard was an inappropriate interface. So uh, it, it kind of redirected the notion of what this machine was. They thought that it was about the sound. Mm. about oh it can sound like this it can sound like that listen to that wonderful sound and for me it was never about the sound but the way the sound moved there was nothing static you know when you're working in this system because control voltages are always in motion they're they're moving they're shaped they go up and down and wherever they're going. But a keyboard voltage is, is rather static. Yeah. Uh, so yes. it was just a different approach. Wow, that is really fascinating. The voltages being what gives you so much variation, sound and movement. We are again going into another break. I'm wondering if you'd like to play us into that break as well with some more of your work. Uh-huh. Well, maybe we can go, we could do a little ocean wave. I don't know how that'll come over the, uh, you know, the uh, the radio. But Let's try it. So this is just simple white noise, yeah. And I can put a little crash in here by putting, turning the filter down. And you should hear that coming up soon. It's on an autopilot. So here it comes. There it is. And then we can use a little bit of uh, bird sound up here. So I'm just, can you hear that? Maybe it's not loud enough. I'll turn it a little bit. I can hear it. Okay, so that's the ocean. I always start with the ocean because for me, everything comes out of the ocean. And uh, then we go into It helps me understand why your album was called Seven Waves. More with Suzanne Chani. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're hearing stories from Suzanne Chani's five-decade music career this hour. She has earned five Grammy nominations for her electronic compositions, but it was her commercial work that supported her artwork. She became known for the logos for Coke, GE, PBS, Merrill Lynch, Atari, and she's also responsible for the swoosh in Afternoon Delight. Also, the sound effects for the pinball game Xenon. Xenon. Suzanne Chani, music composer and performer, is with us, and so are you, our listeners, telling us what you'd like to ask Suzanne or tell her about the music that she has made or what synth music has meant to you. Diane writes, taking her skills to other avenues so resonates with me. My daughter graduated from CalArts in 2009 in costume design. Although efforts to break into costume for film started fine, it was not sustainable. She now uses her skills and talents in media marketing. Suzanne's story is inspiring. Suzanne, the book club broke at one point, I understand. What was that like for you? And did that sort of end your relationship with the book club for a while? Yeah, I had a complete, uh, I had to have an intervention. I had a complete nervous breakdown because, uh, you know, it was my instrument and I had devoted myself to it. And it was my, you know, my primary tool. It was like my violin or my whatever. And suddenly uh, it was unplayable. Uh, it was a problem because, you know, I mean, these things were rare. I had a Buchla in New York. Uh, there were a few and uh, nobody could repair it. It was all very boutique business in those days. Don's circuit diagrams were not understood even by the head of the audio engineering society there. And if I shipped the instrument back to the West Coast to get fixed, it would arrive again broken because of the shipping. Uh, And then half of it was stolen. So, yeah, uh, I just thought at the time that, you know, dupies that delivered it, that they put it on the street in Times Square. Somebody picked up the suitcase, looked at it, said, oh, my gosh, what's this? And threw it in the East River. So I thought it was gone for good. And then 25 years later, it showed up in England. But I never got it back because it was sold you know, piecemeal. All these things happen. It's a, I call it the cloak and dagger side of electronic music. There's a lot of uh, intrigue and I don't know what goes on, but I've learned to be flexible. And my attitude now is if the machine doesn't arrive and is unplayable, I'm stopping. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go through that same emotional <laughs> abyss that I went through, you know. And as long as the grace 
of what I think of as his Bukla's spirit up there protecting me somehow. You know, as long as I'm protected and my concerts can go on, then I'm happy. There are so many moments, as you say, there are sort of defining moments where you chose to just really assert yourself, to to manifest whatever vision you had for your life and make it happen. And I'm just wondering if you've ever thought about where that came from. You've even talked about how when you were working with these big companies and, you know, just basically saying, look, this is how I'm going to interpret this. This is how I'm going to make this and and I'll do it my way. And if you don't like it, that's fine. You can go to someone else. Where did that just real sense of, you know, I I can do this, I will do this, like it or not. Where, Where do you think that came from, Suzanne? I I think it's almost entirely confined to my artistic, uh, what, um, identity. I'm not that, uh, you know, in other areas, I'm not that, um, you know, dedicated or uh, effective. I have a lot of areas in my life where I'm, uh, you know, I don't manifest as easily. But in my artistic identity, I have always been, very strong because to me art is it is uh, it is an identity and it's uh, it's absolute if you want to say something and you have something to say it is yours the artist is a unique quantity and has a unique voice and must honor that unique voice and and that's where that comes from uh independence has long been something that i i long for really uh i grew up in a family with five kids uh, six kids five girls and my father was uh you know an italian potentate you know he told us what to do and told us we were all idiots and I don't know, you know, it wasn't a lot of reinforcement, uh, but they gave us a tremendous amount of freedom and freedom. I think, you know, the unfettered ability to navigate in your world that you want to create, that freedom is everything. And, and that is the power where you say, you know, you can't stop me because I'm free. I'm free and I'm going to do what I do. So I guess that's it. Well, you are certainly affecting our listeners. One writes, this is one of the best radio shows I have heard in ages. What a wonderful (laughs) job. Kudos. Another listener on Discord writes, wow, this is so awesome. As a musician and commercial voiceover artist, I would love to know how she sees her projects all fit together. And when does she know they are done? Well, you know, intuition and the little voice. So as an artist, you do listen to your little voice and it just tells you everything. I I mean, so that's how you know. You know because you know. You know because you're listening to what you know and you're not doubting what you know. (laughs) So you know. Uh, 
it doesn't mean that there aren't doubts along the way because, uh, you know, I always say, you know, if people contact me and they say, I'd like you to listen to this music of mine and, and uh, you know, let me know what, what you think. And I would say, well, tell me what you think. Because if you, you know, I can't verify. I can't corroborate that this is good. Only you can. It is your expression. And if you have any doubts, listen to them and, and fix it yourself. Fix it. Uh, do it until, until you're happy because you're the one who needs to be happy. It doesn't matter what other people think about it. Uh, you know, you're pleasing yourself as an artist. You mentioned earlier that you'd had a breast cancer diagnosis. It's in part what brings you back to California, right? You decide, yes, that's your sign that you need to leave New York for your health. Yes, that's right. And this this was a loop. You know, here I was going in circles because I'd gone from Boston to, you know, East Coast to uh, graduate school in California, went to L.A., went to New York, and now I was doing the circle I don't think I'm going to L.A. again, but um, but here I am back in California. And that was, again, a geographical uh, important. uh, It seems like my whole life is about geography because I came back and I re-met Don Buchla. I had no intention of reconnecting with the Buchla again. But I, I met Don, and uh, I would socialize with him and his wife, and uh, Don and I played tennis. I would pick him up at his studio, but nothing tempted me there. I would see him working on us, and I thought, how lovely. But I wasn't going to go back there again. And, uh, you know, you never know. I, I just say that to myself, that, that I never know what's going to happen because – you know, my career has been uh, a, a, what's the word, a pendulum. You know, I start with the piano, I go to the bukla, I go back to the piano, I go back to the bukla. Uh, you know, it's, you never know what's going to happen. But what brought you to the bukla? I understand you play now a bukla 200E, which is a little bit different than the the original bukla, of course. Um but, but what made you eventually go back? I, I understand you also for a while went back to the piano, but what drew you back to the bukla? Well, you know, I, I say I was living under a rock because I was not aware of the, you know, the revolution, the renaissance uh, that the young generation, the new generation was fomenting about <sighs> electronic music. So yes. all of a sudden there were, yeah, Eurorack, and modules and kids addicted to these modules and wanting to play. And it was for me a dream come true because I always felt that we hadn't really finished the work that we'd started in the 70s. We didn't finish, you know, the promise of analog modular just disappeared. And here we're on, uh, uh, we went backwards and this was the first time that I ever the technology went backwards, 
decisively. The kids said, oh, we want LPs, we want cassettes, we want analog. This was revolutionary that they weren't going along with the agenda of technology, which always said, we're going forward, it's going to be faster and better and different. And, you know, and it had gone into this digital realm that was not, uh, it, it, it lacked a human connection interface. If you are a musician, suddenly you were going through menus of sound. It was just not real time. You know, you were mousing your way through programs. And the attraction of going up to an interface where you could turn a knob and move a slider and get a result was so uh, just, uh, what's the word, uh, wonderful that the kids, you know, they, they started, but I didn't know because I wasn't, you know, I was out here in my little Oceanside home and not tension. I don't do a lot of social media, but, um, and, but I did reconnect mostly through some young people that I met. Mm. Well, um, well, we're so glad you did. And uh, again, reminding listeners about Noise Pop. And also, Suzanne's giving a free lecture tonight at the Belvedere Tiburon Library at 6 p.m. if you're in the area. This happens to be a fundraising period for many public radio stations. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, let me go to John in Santa Clara. John, you're on. Yeah, hi. I am very glad to talk to Suzanne because um, she had an influence on me years ago. Um, I studied electronic music at UC Santa Cruz in 1970 when they first got their Moog 10 lab. And uh, um, I had instructors like uh, Eric Regner and, um, uh, um, uh, well, not John Chowning, but I came to know him and uh, Alan Strange, Lou Harrison. And uh, being able to compose things microtonally, because my influences originally were like Vario and Stockhausen, Zanakis, Subotnik, and so forth. Mm. I was wondering how much of the time nowadays, in terms of your, your work, are you working totally, what I want to say, microtonally or tonally without the constraints of the standard scale? Hmm. John, thanks. Suzanne? Yeah, well, for one thing, I, I don't use MIDI, so I'm not constrained. You know, I'm not a fan of MIDI in this uh, chapter of my electronic life. I certainly have used it for a lot of uh, studio albums, but I find MIDI, MIDI very confining in terms of all parameters of sound, pitch, volume, whatever. You know, you, you're given this grid of 100 abilities and that's it. So... Uh, but I do, uh, I do use tonal. You know, I am a pitch-centered composer. My sequences are done in traditional, uh, you know, tonal values. But uh, I, I don't feel obliged to stay always in that because I can, with electronic slide. Mm you know i can just go all over the place and i do so i like that aspect that it's not uh, a rigid 
tonal system. But uh, thank you for the question, John. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Liz Listener writes, I can't wait to hear her performance at Noise Pop. And, you know, we are going to go out on the song Second Wave from your album, Seven Waves. That was your first album that you self-produced because, as you were saying, people were not necessarily thinking about the things that you were doing with the Bukla as being necessarily an album. So you produced this album. I'm wondering if you want to say anything about sort of reinterpreting it now, 40 years later, or what is exciting you creatively now? Um, The thing about Seven Waves is that um, by the time I was in a position to record this first, uh, the world of electronics had changed tremendously. So it was no longer for me even about just the bukla. Uh, it, I do have early recordings, the Buchla Concerts 1975 that came out on Finders Keepers. You can you can sample the original, you know, vocabulary of the analog modular. But uh, Seven Waves was uh, a combination of my classical roots with my new languaging of electronics. It's completely electronic, but not completely Buchla. And I think part of it was that I was very lonely in my Buchla world because nobody had a listening for it. They couldn't even hear it. They didn't know what it was. And so I took my melodic sense and I combined that, the the melodies, and it was literally, you know, scored, you know, to a large degree. And so that represents a merger of those two worlds. Now I'm in the Buchla world and at this concert at Grace Cathedral, I have taken the fragments from the Seven Waves recording. So I had the multi-tracks uh, transferred and I, I am incorporating some of those fragments into the Buchla. It's a wonderful kind of meeting of two parts of my life. Wow. Well, we're so, well, good luck with the performance at Grace Cathedral and congratulations on 40 years since the album came out. And thank you so much for talking with us, Suzanne. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Mina. It's been all my pleasure, I'm sure. Thank you so much. Suzanne Chani, a pioneer, trailblazer in synth music, a synth composer, electronic music composer and performer. This is Second Wave from her album, Seven Waves. Mark Nieto produced today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Nina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.